Breaking the Glass Slipper, we believe it is important to have conversations about women and issues of intersectional feminism within science fiction, fantasy and horror. To continue to do so, we need your help. Please consider supporting us on Patreon. Join the conversation by following us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Welcome to Breaking the Glass Slipper. I'm Megan Lee. I'm Charlotte Bond. And I'm Lucy Hounsom. Well, it's that time again, 80s fantasy film fun time. So this time around, we are looking at 1988's Willow, starring Warwick Davis and Val Kilmer, directed by Ron Howard, with a story by George Lucas. But first, let's set the scene. It is a time of dread. Seers have foretold the birth of a child who will bring about the downfall of the powerful Queen Bavmorda. Seizing all pregnant women in the realm, the evil queen vows to destroy the child when it is born. And so the film begins. <laughs> so before we get into the dissecting this film... Wait, 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 wait. Before we get into the dissecting, did you play Bav Morda? But I would have been amazing in that role. Just. I was just going to say, I mean, like if they did a reprise, then I really think you should audition. I would be fantastic. Uh, yeah. Please <laughs> continue, Bath Morda. <laughs> please, please to, uh, refer to me that way throughout the rest of the episode. Thank you. Um, well, yes, I wanted to discuss first uh, how we all came to this film, as we all have different, you know, stories and different, um, I suppose, you know, attachments to these films. So for me, I was obviously a huge Star Wars fan as a child, and nothing has changed to the point where I still have Star Wars bedspread. Star Wars underwear, Star Wars t-shirts, Star Wars pajamas, Star Wars decorations in my house. Like it's, yeah, it's still a real thing. Uh, Anyway, my parents thought, well, if you like that, you'll probably like this other one that George Lucas did. So here, have a look at Willow. And of course, I loved Willow because quite frankly, Warwick Davis is amazing. And I loved this film as a child. So I think I probably do have that, you know, nostalgia, rose-tinted glasses for this one. Okay, so I'd like to come in here because I represent the absolute opposite end of that spectrum. When I was watching it ostensibly for the first time today, I um, there were bits that seemed familiar. Unlike Labyrinth or The Dark Crystal, which are my kind of like childhood nostalgia favourites, uh, this one is, I have no... Uh, nostalgic attachment to it whatsoever. Well, as the old woman of the group, um, I saw this back probably when it was first broadcast on TV. And I saw it back in the days when you had VHS recorders and you, you know, had to try and time it just right and you could cut the end off or you had to fast forward all the adverts or when it was probably cut as well. And I was thinking about this. And when I was a kid, uh, because I grew up as an only child, there was a lot of TV in my life, and I watched Carry On program, Carry On films, watched James Bond. I'm sure that I watched things like uh, Five Children in It, Treasure Island, all this kind of stuff. But Willow was one of the films that really, really had a big impact on me when I was a kid, and I remember it really vividly compared to the other things that I vaguely seen that I don't really remember. And I think there were various different reasons for that. And I think one of the reasons that we're going to come on to is it had some brilliant female characters in it. And I also am a Star Wars fan. I don't have Star Wars pyjamas, but it's only because I'm obviously not shopping in the same places as Megan. 
But I really love that. And I really love Princess Leia. And for me, I felt that this was kind of filled with some really good female characters and Warwick Davis, who's just amazing. And Val Kilmer, who for a young girl is, you know, quite easy on the eyes. But there was also a lot of fear in it. And I know we're going to talk about this later, but I really found that some of the frightening bits in it really stuck it in my mind, along with things like The Last Unicorn and The NeverEnding Story and that bit with the RUSs from The Princess Bride. They were all things that stuck in my head because they were quite frightening, but they were very memorable and they really enhanced the experience because it wasn't just a, a nice, gentle, rolling childhood drama. There was really some action and some danger and some tension in it. So I remember it very fondly from being a kid, but also with a decent amount of fear. I mean, you know, me, obviously, as Bav Morda was terrifying. So, you know, I can understand. (laughs) Anyway... Well, I hate to tell you, Bav Morda, but it was actually your pets that terrified me. I, When I rewatched Willow, I was looking at those animals that they dress up, which clearly a dog under there with like something added. And I'm like, what the hell is that? It's like part pig, part bear, part dog. It was just terrifying. And when they kill that old woman at the right at the beginning, basically, even before the titles have come up, and I'm like, oh, my God, it's like it's terrifying. Never mind anything else. I think that in loosely ties into what we were saying the other day about monsters because we were weren't we saying that like it's it a monster is scarier when we have no frame of reference and you were like I don't know what it is it's like a dog a bear a pig like oh, one of those wild boars it could be anything and that's what's so scary because it's like not identifiable well absolutely it's like I have a hundred ways to fend off dogs or different ways to fend off bears but what do you do if a dog bear comes at you it's like none of them are going to work or maybe all of them will it's just terrifying particularly when you're only a child Um, a dog bear right well a dog bear (laughs) if it comes at you no let's talk archetypes because George Lucas loves archetypes anyone who's seen Star Wars knows this and Willow is no different So, you know, what archetypes do we see in the film? And, you know, are there any subversions of these tropes? Hmm? I was like, what is the beginning, if not a reversal of the Herod story? You've got, in Herod, in the Bible, you've got an evil king going, oh, there's like going to be a new king of the Jews. I must go out and kill all the male children. And in this one, you've got Bab Morda, queen, going, oh my God, there's going to be a new baby queen. I must go out and kill all the girls. And then you've got that bit where they push the baby down the river in... I know no other word for it other than Moses basket because that's what Moses was pushed in. And I'm like, it's a grass mat. (laughs) But we're not even 10 minutes in and we've already had complete reversal of the Bible. It's great. (laughs) Oh, and then obviously I I think there's like, um, I said the Lady of the Lake with, uh, what's the the Uber woman called? Uh, Sherlindria, I think. Um, She gives him the the magic hazel twig. I'm literally going to call them fairy evil queen. Which <laughs> I can't remember their names. You only watched it today. Exactly. I'll remember you, Bad Morda, though, my queen. Well, I'm looking forward to us getting really drunk and trying to say Mad Mordigan really fast. Yeah, don't get me started on that one. <laughs> yes, sorry, uh, archetypes. Um, well, uh, yeah, in addition to that, I was thinking also you've got the orphan. Uh, the warrior, the rogue, the mentor. Um, and interestingly, is a bit of a mashup, like um, Mad Mordigan. Is that his name? Mad Mortigan, yeah. Mortigan. 
Yeah, he's an interesting mashup of the warrior and the rogue because clearly he has his very roguish personality. He wouldn't be in a cage, you know, if he didn't um, commit some probably petty theft. And there's references to him being a thief in the first place. But actually, when he kind of begins to develop, like it turns out that he's probably closer to the warrior archetype. And obviously, orphan, big, big thing, which of course I think we'll be talking about in a bit that ties very neatly into the chosen one um, idea, since most chosen ones do tend to be orphans. Uh, and the idea of the found family, it's this crops up as well, which is also um, a motif that tends to follow in the chosen one's wake. Thinking about your idea of Mad Mordigan being the rogue, um, when I've been thinking about trinities in the past, when I've been sort of pulling apart novels to see why they work, one of the things I found when it comes to trinities and works really well in Star Wars is that the rogue is usually always the competent one. So you've got the one who is trying to find his way and isn't quite there yet, which is typically Willow. And then you have the rogue, which is Han Solo, who's usually the competent one. And if you think about it, Han Solo is quite smooth and charming, but he is kind of cool and he, he gets the job done. <laughs> Whereas I kind of feel that Mad Morgan doesn't really get to be competent until at least two thirds of the way through the film. And when he is competent, he kicks ass. But at the beginning, it's like dressing up as a woman and boobs falling out and all this, that and the other and getting caught twice and losing the baby. And it's like, oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> ah, so that's interesting. So maybe he is also a fusion of the jester or the, the joker character, the archetype. I've just forgot. Just, you reminded me of the scene with the boobs, you know, dressing up as a woman and all of that jesting stuff. So that's interesting. He's a bit of a mashup, actually, of all, all characters. Well, I did wonder if he represents sort of a lack of toxic masculinity because he is happy mm. to dress up as a woman and he's still quite kick-ass when he dresses up as a woman. I mean, he's still pretty useless as well, but, you know, he's, he's quite good. And he's got all the long hair and he's, you know, he looks after Willow. And at the end, when or when they're towards the end, when they're saying about... Um, what's inspired them. They made this big thing about Mad Morgan fights for no one. And Mad Morgan stands up and says, I fight for Willow. And in traditional societies, you wouldn't necessarily think of dwarves leading within a fantasy setting. Usually the dwarves are the sidekicks. Um, and I really like that you've got this dwarf, well, I can't remember what they call them in particular, um, in Willow. Well, I was just going to say it's very inclusive because they didn't do the thing that they did in The Lord of the Rings and like, oh, we'll just cast tall people and then foreshorten them to make them look like halflings and I was like I was really impressed by that I wasn't aware that the 80s was especially you know inclusive you know in the way that we're kind of aware that films ought to be well I wonder if it's the 80s or whether it is George Lucas because as I've mentioned on the podcast before I really liked his inclusive fairy tale Strange Magic which was the only fairy tale film that I know of to date where the hero is traditionally ugly but doesn't need to change his appearance to win the pretty girl. So I kind of wonder whether George Lucas just has this right idea of morals and how fairy tales should work um, and it comes through in some of his lesser known films because obviously in Star Wars everything is bright and shiny and fits all the archetypes but then you get something like Willow or Strange Magic which has perhaps got more of a cult following but still has some really good um, ideas in it and some really good societies as well and like Lucy said they had a whole society of dwarves that were just amazing. It was like everybody. And they all, it just felt right. It felt like a proper society rather than, like Lucy said, trying to, you know, make people look smaller and shorter and CGI is all great. But, you know, it was really good to see people interacting with other people and having that sort of Tolkien idea as well. Okay. Well, I mean, similarly to, I guess, Tolkien and 
and a lot of these kind of fantasy adventure stories, this is kind of a classic hero's journey where they also literally go on a journey. <laughs> but I really liked this one in that uh, the journey, he sets off on the journey as kind of this is your task, you must do this to save our village kind of thing. But then he defies what he's meant to do. The others, you know, and he, and he sticks to his morals and, and basically gets abandoned um, to continue on his journey, which I, I really like. So it, it works very well for Willow's character development. So Willow's journey, he kind of maps very neatly onto the chosen one, but of course he's not the chosen one. The chosen one is the baby with a, even, you know, complete with a chosen one mark and everything, you know, the special mark. And that was, I thought that was really refreshing to have, to set up a story that's like, the you know, like even the introduction sets it up to you think okay right so this is going to be the story about you know this child growing up and overthrowing the evil empire and that sort of stuff and then it, it turns out that actually you know it's um it's like the cho the chosen one needs a little bit of help along the way and it reminded me so much of if you i don't know if either of you read um sebastian de castell's spellslinger series i have nope. not okay so that series is so interesting because it does exactly the same thing it's the it's the main character is not the chosen one. It turns I won't spoil it for anyone who hasn't read it, but the chosen one, there is a chosen one um, in the book, um, which is not apparent throughout most of it because you don't ever really get any story from the chosen one's perspective. And it's really interesting because the main character comes to realize that everything he is fighting for and everything he struggled against is in defense of the chosen one is to build a world in which the chosen one can therefore fulfill their destiny. And that's what I think Willow is doing as well. That without all those people, the found family that Elora, I think it is, um, has, she cannot fulfill her destiny. But that's kind of what most chosen ones stories do, isn't it? Like in Harry Potter, Harry Potter is not really that talented. He's not the one that really drives anything. Stuff happens to him and his friends bail him out constantly and he would never get anywhere without them. I agree, but the story is Harry's story. Like it's always he is always the main character. He's always been the main character. It's Harry Potter and the so and so, Harry Potter and the something something. Whereas yeah. Fisherman is not called Elora. It's called Willow. And yes. we're told that Elora is the chosen one, but why is the film... It's a bit like the old, you know, I had an essay question once saying, you know, like, why is uh, Othello not called Iago when Iago is the character who drives the entire narrative? And it's another... It's the same kind of... Raises the same interesting question about narrative focus and why we're so obsessed with the chosen one and following the story of the chosen one so i really like that it shines a kind of light onto the the people around the chosen one and and how they enable her to kind of fulfill her destiny because she actually has very little character development she's a baby so it's like i just thought that was that was really interesting i like the way that it subverted that idea of what you were expecting uh, and then it's not what you you know, the chosen one is not who you kind of think it, it it is. Well, that reminds me of a romance writing course I attended where they broke down sort of the story and applied it to romance, but also to a wider thing. And I remember always saying, whose story is it? And she made the wonderful point, this teacher, that Pride and Prejudice is Mr. Darcy's story. 
because he's the one who changes the most. And it might have been told from Elizabeth Bennett's point of view, and she does undergo some some changes, but actually the radical change of opinion and behaviour is Mr. Darcy. And I know we could argue about that for, for hours, but it does make a good point when it comes to Willow and what Lucy says, that the baby, Laura Dannon, never actually changes. She can't do. Um, but Willow is the one who finds his own character his own strength within i mean it starts off with that whole thing about him trying to be a wizard and that bit where um the elder wizard is putting up his fingers and says please pick the one which has the power in it to control the world and the answer is well it's your own one because that's the you know that's the one that you're using and i think that it's just the story of willow getting his power getting his confidence and i think that's why Obviously, it's focused on him. But like Lucy says, you would expect it to be the chosen one who comes into her power, whereas she just kind of does stuff. And it would be wonderful to see a sequel. I know that Disney are thinking of doing a a series of it, and I don't know if that's going to be following on, but it would be lovely to kind of think that Laura grows up and then has to call on Willow, this grey sorcerer, to come and help her out because that would kind of be the next stage of the journey. Yeah, that would be really great if he could then become the mentor character. (laughs) That would be so cool. Or if he could just have another adventure, because why can't older people have adventures? You might have a coming of age one. Why can't you have, I was going to say a midlife crisis one, but you know what I mean. (laughs) I'm glad you touched on that, actually, because what I thought, the other thing that was very unusual, and it's something we don't see that often, particularly in fantasy, is when the main character has kids and a wife. Like, that's fairly unusual, really, that a kids and a wife is end game stuff. That's the stuff when you level up and you've saved the world and you get the princess and you start a happy family in a, in a new world you've built together through your heroic deeds. Um, but he he has a life already. Like, it's a very established life, you know? His wife and children, he's very happy. He doesn't want to go on a quest. And I it's so interesting that they picked that character to them because it, it, it's almost like, um, you know, it's again riffing on the chosen one. It's saying, you know, like, what is the, the chosen one? And what is that idea? Like, do all chosen ones have to be young, impressionable? Do they Are they all coming of age stories? Because you could easily argue that Willow's a coming of age story because you just said that he grows as a person. He finds his own courage and he learns to believe in himself. All of these things are... Um, necessary they're necessary parts of a traditional chosen one narrative but actually he's presented as someone who already has a life and it's is a pretty good life you know they seem quite comfortable so I really liked that that they you know they were saying look if anyone can be a hero and we need anyone and everyone to be a hero it doesn't matter what stage of life you're at Um, and it's the wife and kids don't have to be end game, you know. You, if you're called upon to stand up and be counted, then you know that's that's what you have to do if you believe it's right. Well, that's a really interesting point, actually, because if you think about it, it makes comparison later on. So you've got Willow at the beginning who sees the baby and goes, "No, no, let's just push it down the stream." And it's actually his wife and kids who go, "No, no, no, we must take it and look after it." He's like, "No, no, push it down the stream. I don't want it." And then he takes it because his he has to. His his family sort of, you know, he they take it home. He has to look after it, and then he has to take it to the the elder council. 
And then the elder asks him, do you have any love for this? And you kind of get this feeling that he's just a nice guy and a natural dad anyway. And then eventually when he does get to uh, the crossroads and finds Mad Morgan, who should be the kind of chosen one warrior material, he's just terrible at looking after it. He like, get, gets stolen by a hawk, for goodness sake. So you kind of get this feeling that Willow would not have happened and baby Elora would not have been safe if she hadn't been found by a family man. And that's a really interesting point, Lucy. So maybe it isn't a coming-of-age story. Maybe it is a midlife crisis story because Willow is a farmer, but he wants to become a magician. And this is a way for him to fulfill that. And then he comes back and feels more secure in his society because he has achieved something and has impressed his family rather than, you know, winning the woman at the end of it as the end game. I really like that idea. I really like that idea as someone who is kind of on the cusp of wanting to kind of level up into something else, farmer to a wizard, which is a big, a bit of a jump, admittedly. I really like that idea that this, the quest for him is this kind of transition, a catharsis, really, where he's almost like, you know, he's a bit of a chrysalis and he emerges as a butterfly. Like what he wants to be at the end, he doesn't just, you know, but it's interesting because it's not a refutation of his role as a father and a family man. It's, it's an augmentation of that in that he's actually rewarded and applauded for his skills in you know seeking milk for the baby changing the baby taking care of the baby's needs she he knows when she's going to throw up you know like all of that stuff is necessary um for the quest to succeed absolutely and the only issue i have with that you're quite right at the beginning there is a load of looking after the baby at the same time and he has to change her and you know feed her and I really like that but then it kind of dwindles off towards the end (laughs) and they just he's just kind of carrying him around at the end and I kind of felt a bit sad about that because when I was thinking about The Vagrant written by Pete Newman that involves a warrior type who has given an oath to look after a baby and I've mentioned it before where he has like a a goat that he carries that he takes around with him on his quest so that he's got milk to feed the baby and when he's about to fight a giant troll or something it's like put the baby down tie up the goat so it doesn't run away take off my nappy changing sack and then go and fight it and then come back and milk the goat and I thought there was a lot of that at the beginning of Willow and then towards the end she did kind of get carried around a bit but to be honest it's just such an amazing film to you know even have that at the beginning rather than just any other film which has babies in when they do just literally seem to sit there and as a parent I have to say that baby has the most expressive face I have ever seen my child made all of those noises and all of those expressions across maybe six months not not in the space of two hours I'm like that baby should get a golden globe for being so well behaved and just so expressive it was amazing well, I'm still reeling from Charlotte calling uh, Willow a bit of a midlife crisis, given that Warwick Davis was 17 at the time, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, you know, how old was Sarah Michelle Gellar when she played Buffy? You know, the age in real life doesn't matter. It's how they are set up. And Willow is set up as a farmer. He would never be 17 in the actual thing, because, like, you just don't got enough time to have those children they were quite old <laughs> when you think about it yeah tricky ah tricksy filmmakers i wanted to pick up on what you said though charlotte about willow you know building on his self-confidence and believing in himself and that kind of being one of the major points of growth for his character and a theme for the film because that is definitely one of the themes that really struck me as a child as and as an adult you know that's something that I still constantly battle is believing in myself so I think that that's a really strong 
part of this film and what makes it, you know, potential for cult status is that it's got so many threads and themes in this film that resonate with audiences. And, you know, it, the the self-belief and confidence stuff is there and, and the outcast piece, you know, and there's so many parts of that outcast, you know, where Alora is literally sent down the stream, an outcast from her people. She is stuck with, you know, a different race of people. Um, you have Willow as the outcast within the his village. They all think he's a bit of a joke. You've got Mad Mordigan, who's an outcast, you know, and so on and so forth. So there's there's really strong themes in this film. I mean, what themes of this film did did you like? How do you think that it, it handled them and what made them effective or ineffective, if you disagree? Well, I'm a huge fan of Pratchett and my favourites are, are always the Vime stories because I love an underdog story. And it's set up at the beginning that Willow is a farmer and he does have a family and he is set up. But you have that bit where the head of the uh, Nelwyn, I've looked it up on IMDb, Nelwyn village, comes up and says, I'm going to have these lands off you. Where's this grain come from? Why haven't you bought it from me? And you can tell that he's struggling. He's the underdog. And then everybody's like, oh, you can't be a magician and all this kind of stuff. So he's very definitely underdog. He's very definitely doesn't believe in himself, but neither does society. And the challenge, yes, is to find your own belief in yourself but also to convince everybody around you um and the same with mad morgan as well that he when he's in the cage and is it eric comes along and says um oh we're off to war and mad morgan is like no no i must come and fight with you You know i could win this war for you um eric's like yeah right (laughs) and then just i'm gonna leave you there because you don't serve anybody so as much about finding a confidence to yourself it's about convincing society around you that you are valued and that what you say you can do is what you can do and i think that was that was really really good finding your place and it was both of them so you had the big masculine warrior type and then sort of the mage type um and they both found strength in each other and looked out for each other and just forge their own ways in society and I thought that was that was really good I really enjoyed that can I just say that I feel like you've just pointed out that even the men you know the warrior type men in this film like Mad Mardigan are basically having the same fight that women have every day of trying to prove our worth and that we can you know be something and that's yeah don't know what to say about that but it just as you were speaking I was like huh that's what I was talking about earlier with Mad Morgan not being something to do with toxic masculinity. He's got long hair. He dresses as as a woman sometimes. He's happy to care for a baby. And I mean, he doesn't do it that well, but you know, and again, you've got Willow, who's this important magical person, but he still cares for the baby. And it's a very female thing to look after a baby. And it's not even like, oh, it's my son and he's going to be king. Like, no, it's a girl, you know, and it's a girl baby and you've got to look after her. And there's a whole different relationship between fathers and daughters, between fathers and sons. It's just such a wonderfully feminine, non-toxic masculinity kind of film at the same time as having great alpha male characters. And I think part of that comes around, like you were saying, by having men appreciate some of the trouble that you have as a woman in society trying to be taken seriously and no no I am good and then going yeah right we've got you know I'm the commander of the army I think you're useless and you know oh no I'm I'm the elder of the village and I think you're useless it's just a good underdog story and I think there are plenty of men who will appreciate that as well and it's just such a good theme whether it's in Pratchett or in George Lucas's story 
So I wanted to pick up what Megan was saying about the outcasts um, and also what I mentioned earlier about found family, because this is what I think this film did really interestingly. Um, Willow is is an outcast and is going to be not obviously a complete outcast, but he's definitely doesn't fit in particularly well. Um, there's Laura, who is orphaned from the start. Um mad mad warrior dude in, in a in a cage clearly an outcast um and uh and i thought was it was actually I've, i'm just going to touch on this later but also Sorcha for um, um an example because i think she's what happens to her she actually eventually is an outcast from her family as well so this whole theme of outcasts is really interesting and found family and it seems like because also there there are multiple races um you know featured in the film which is something fantasy loves to do um what was so interesting is that clearly these races are you know they're not necessarily um hostile to each other but they certainly have no wish uh, to be respectful or understand each other like the um there's a special name for the races that willow belongs to what's it called peck no, 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 that's the insult. Nelwyn is what the door is. Nelwyn, that's what I was going for. What I think is really interesting about the outcasts and the fact that each of these outcasts belongs to a different race is none of those races would be particularly helpful or cooperative um, to each other, um, except that it takes an outcast of the race to be able to reach out to other races and cooperate. I think even the brownies can be uh, subsumed into this because clearly those two jokers, you know, they act on their own. They're not part of the rest of the gang. They're clearly goofballs. Um, so they're very much like, you know, and, and everyone has, oh, brownies. They can generally have a... But actually, they prove their worth several times over in their kind of goofball way. Um, and I think that all the the peck stuff you know the insults that keep being leveled at um you know willow's people um by the um what's it the hikini it takes um you know god i wish i remembered his name mad mortian to actually like spend time with them and realize that but he i, I feel like this wouldn't have happened um, with just, you know, because he try, Willow tries to stop them loads of times. He's always like reaching out to them saying, please take the baby. And they're all ignoring him. They don't see anyone worthwhile there. But he's an outcast uh, from his own people himself. So I feel like it take, there's something about not being understood by your own people that m- enables you to reach out and be, you know, um, in- enables you to embrace other cultures and other ways of seeing and other viewpoints and that in the end they all end up working together i'm sorry megan you're gonna have to take a back seat again as i talk about tolkien but um what lucy's saying does make me think of the comparison with both the lord of the rings and the hobbits and you're right they're two outcasts and they kind of come together and forge almost a new society where eric and his huge well massively diminished by the end army are willing to stand behind them and follow them and i was thinking about in the hobbit you have obviously the dwarves and you have gandalf who kind of flits in and out and then you have bilbo and they've got their own little talents and they kind of go off on their own little quests kind of thing and certainly in the lord of the rings they all start off together and they all diverge and you've got um, you've got the dwarf, the human, and the elf going off on their little quest, and the little halflings go off on their little thing. But oh, you don't get that in Willow. They 
definitely have one quest, one role, and it's like we've got to unite and we've got to unite everyone around us as well. And we've got this mad woman in a nighty with big white hair that we're all supposed to follow and believe in as well. And you don't necessarily get that kind of merging within Tolkien. And like Lucy said, you get this feeling of two cultures really coming together and if not understanding each other, then at least working together for a common goal against a common bad guy. My problem with this is that so many fantasy narratives use racism as shorthand and it really, really bothers me. So... This is definitely a thing in David Eddings, so Lucy will agree with me with the Belgariad, and it's kind of a joke in the Belgariad. It is, yeah. (laughs) But, you know, it's this thing is as soon as there are different races within this fantasy world, they immediately hate each other. They have insulting names for people. They have nicknames that are pejorative. They have all this hatred for one another, not really based on anything. They just hate them because they're other. and. While I feel like, sure, this is probably quite an accurate reflection of our world, why do we have to see such intolerance in our fantasy worlds? And that, I think, is one of the the things that Willow doesn't do very well, but it also is kind of endemic in fantasy narratives everywhere I see. Now, you see, I would agree with that to a certain extent, but also disagree with it in relation to Willow. And I get what you're saying, that it it is kind of an accurate reflection of our world. And I think from a storytelling point of view, we were talking earlier about how it is the hero's journey to find confidence in himself, but also to convince greater society that they are worthy. And I think you've got to have societal pressures for the heroes to overcome so that you can do that. And I just think it depends on where you set your society and sort of what balance you have, what your characters, who they are, what they're trying to achieve, depends what kind of prejudice you have. I mean, you could sort of say the same thing about old women in Terry Pratchett witches novels and, you know, why are we seeing all this hatred and suspicion of old women? But they kind of turn that to their advantage. And I feel that that's what happens in Willow. And I think the key thing in Willow that you don't get in Tolkien or not to as much of an extent, is that at the end, I was I just loved the bit where Mad Morgan stands up and goes, I fight for Willow. And if you look at society's judgment, our society now, you would look at Warwick Davis, who in our language is a dwarf, in their language is an Elwin, and go, well, he's not a fighting man. He's not particularly smart. He's just a dad. He's just a farmer. What's the point? But within the world that George Lucas has created with the Nelwyn and the Daikini, they come together and he is, you've got Mad Morgan, the alpha male going, no, no, I'm going to follow this guy. I believe this guy is right. And that's what I'm going to do. And never mind you over there, Eric, with your, your big power and never mind Bavamorda with all of her torturing and, and magic and never mind um, Finn Rizal with all of her magic as well. I'm going to follow Willow. And I think that's just such a refreshing message to have in a, a fantasy novel. And if I think about in a comparison with Tolkien, then you obviously have that whole bit in, um, certainly in the movie, which is very particular, where you have Aragorn saying, no, no, you halflings bow to no one. He bows and everybody bows. But that's kind of not really, that's right at the end when everybody's done everything. You don't ever really see 
the humans working on behalf of the the halflings you know it all kind of happens in the background yeah i would agree with that actually because you know sam and frodo are abandoned to complete their part of the quest which is arguably the most important part on their own and uh, so so much for the fellowship it's, it was a nice idea while it lasted kind of thing but actually you guys you know you you're really on your own <laughs> humans aren't going to help humans have got their own problems you halflings need to sort it out yourselves so i i do feel there is some um truth in in the fact that that doesn't happen to, to the same extent in willow that people are not these separate races are not left to their own devices that actually success it is completely reliant on cooperation can we talk about whether it's feminist now oh please i want to <laughs> <laughs> yes dear listeners this is what you're all really here for now is Willow a feminist film? Yes! <laughs> Am I allowed to talk about it or does Lucy want to go first? No, I'm I'm very happy to sit here and listen. I, I think we should I think we should uh, go through, you know, some of the interesting points that uh, you you came up with. <laughs> it just so happens that a YouTube video also came up with the same. Well, I thought it independently. <laughs> Let's go through your independent thoughts. I don't want to now. <laughs> <laughs> Come on, I'm sure you would like to talk about the matriarchal power structure. I would. So, like Megan, I saw this film when I was a kid, and I remember it for the terrifying dogs and the magical powers and Saoirse, who was just amazing, and I just loved her. But when I went back and watched it as an adult, aware of um, society and feminism and all the things that we discuss and that we look for in our writing and, and reading and watching these days... I was surprised at just how feminist a film that stars two guys in pretty much the main role is. And one of the things, two things that I thought about it, one was the hierarchy. So you haven't got an evil king, you've got an evil queen and there is no king. She just rules. Queen Bavmolder rules and she's got like wizard, some kind of wizard accomplices who very definitely serve her. And she's got her daughter, and I think it's General Kale, I think he's called, who has this amazing skull mask. And one of the things that I didn't notice, which the YouTube video did point out to me, was that at the point where Saoirse has failed to find the baby, Bav Morder turns to General Kale and says, not you take over, but can you help my daughter? Even then, even when her daughter has failed, her daughter is still in charge and she is the one who sorts it all out. And... I mean, the amount of women in this who have power, you've got Finn Rosale, who admittedly has been vanquished in the beginning and spends her time as various rodents and birds and a goat at one point. But when she comes to power, she is able to cast a spell that equals Bav Morders. And at the end, the two of them have this really amazing, powerful fight. And I love how it really is kick-ass, but at the same time, they go arse over tits over a fallen table and their legs are sticking up in the air. And I think that's a wonderful side to it that you maybe don't get in the grand jewels of, say, I don't know, Gandalf and Saruman or something. Although, again, as the YouTube video pointed out, credit where credit's due, it was a very similar kind of, of film and um, scene that they had. And then as we've been talking earlier, you've got Elora... Danan, who is the key chosen one. And she, theoretically, you could say she has some influence because you have um, 
Shalindria, who says, oh, well, Alora has picked you, Willow. And although Willow could turn around and refuse, you know, there's kind of something about a princess going, oh, go on, be my guardian, that has an effect on her. And there's a point where Willow doesn't want to go with Mad Mordigan. <laughs> Laura just bursts into tears and Willow's like, oh, okay. And calls up Mad Mordigan and goes, oh, you've got to go. And then Mad Mordigan's like, no, I don't want to. And then Laura just holds his hand and he's like, oh. So I suppose she does have some effect there. But, I mean, I we could have a whole episode where I discuss how amazing Saoirse is. I mean, she's the equal in martial prowess of Mad Mordigan. And she has her own agency she is she's just brilliant the only problem i have with Saoirse is that she ends up suddenly falling for mad mordigan and as this youtube video suggested it's it's not necessarily because he's a good fighter but because she sees his selfless acts and personally i feel that's taking it a bit far i kind of felt like it was they needed a romance they needed a point where she turned and decided that she really did love him and whatever but I still think that he's right in that she made the choice. It's not that Mad Mordigan swept her off her feet, James Bond style, and held her against the wall and kissed her till she gave in. She sees him fighting. She comes up. She's got a sword to his neck. And then she picks him up and she kisses him. And Uh, it's just wonderful. (laughs) But I would argue that Sorsha has not been raised by that mother. You say that there's no father on the scene, which is correct. So... By that mother and in that environment, Sorsha has not been raised to value selfless acts of heroism or righteousness, is what the YouTube video uses that particular word. So I thought it, that argument rings completely falsely um, because I don't think she, um, you know, how has she turned out that way? Um, because it's certainly not the way that you would expect a person to turn out when they were raised in Batmwater's evil court of evil oh absolutely and i think there's there's a good strong argument in that lucy and you've got all that bit at the beginning with bab Morda and saucia and you kind of go wow this girl has had no love at all and no praise really but you then get that bit where mad mordigan has the love potion and he's like oh but you're wonderful and you're fabulous and and you can see i can kind of see how she has the reaction of okay this guy's being really nice and even when i threaten him He's still being really nice. And then the love potion wears off. And she got she's just got that wonderful line that just won me over, which was, I dwell in darkness without you. And it went away. <laughs> it's just this wonderful thing of, oh, so you were just saying that and all of these things. And just shows that she sees through his BS. And I can't see how a woman who is that powerful, that independent, that incisive, then goes, oh my gosh, look at him fighting and then falls in love with him. But you know what? There's so much fabulous stuff in the film and so many powerful figures that are women and a wonderful hierarchy that I'm willing to overlook this tiny bit because you know what? I'm pretty sure if I saw Val Kilmer running around with his long hair streaming behind him in a load of armour that I'd probably go, ah, as well. Right. So, go for it. This is... I I really liked the idea of the, this film being feminist, and I think that you and the um, oh-so-convenient YouTube video that summarised all of your points uh, are correct in many ways, and I think it's a very, you know, there are very good arguments here. However, one of the main arguments that this particular video, and you have just put forward, is 
that the film is, it has by its very nature a matriarchal power structure. And it goes, you know, it takes pains to uh, go through every way that this is a matriarchal, matriarchal power structure and all of the people that, um, that set that up. So I, however, would argue that that matriarchal structure is not obvious to the viewer um, on first viewing because it's just not overt it's not overt enough. For example, Roselle is meant to be an all-powerful sorceress. However, she can't do anything without Willow first turning her back into her all-powerful self, which he multiple times fails to do and ends up actually mocking her several times. I mean, she just because she doesn't mean it, but actually she is kind of made to look really quite silly. Um, so she does become a, a, an empowered uh, and, and powerful sorceress who has a real scrap with the evil queen, but she cannot do that alone. Willow has to do that for her. The fairy, who you described, Charlotte, as the kind of um, lady of the lake type, is intangible, incorporeal. She's unable to act except through Willow. And by even then, she cannot compel him to do to go to the lake to, to fulfill the quest. She can only suggest and say, here's my wand and this is, you know, look into your heart of hearts and you'll see it's the right thing to do. So again, you know, if she cares about the future of the land, she should really just do something about it herself, but she can't. She's completely powerless and therefore Willow has to do it again, uh, everything for her. So this is telling me that the only people in the film so far that can touch the world are men even though you have this idea of these women, great women behind the scenes kind of pulling the strings, um, Willow's wife, for example, is the one who finds the chosen one, the child of destiny, and yet is left at home to mind her own children instead of going on the adventure. Willow has to go on the adventure and is kind of rewarded for his kind of like, oh, well, you know, you, we've said this before. He he's just wants to let the baby go away. He just wants to go back to his ordinary farmer's life, even though he has all these dreams of being a magician. Actually, she's the one, his wife, who wants to, you know, get in on the adventure and take the child and take the chance and change their lives. But does she get to? No, she has to stay at home and wait for him to come back. So the thing about Sorsha, I loved her like you. I thought she's a really wonderful character. And um, apart from the one scene near the end where her armour miraculously turns into a kind of mesh top, which looks very fetching with a kind of like, you know, a, a, a brassiere kind of look, which I thought was a slightly disappointing. But I think she's a really great character. Except, of course, uh, she ends up um, clearly uh, with a man and a baby in her life, uh, which were the only things that she was lacking before. Clearly, you know, it was her life was unfulfilling. Uh, she wasn't very good at her, her job, basically, because she failed to catch the baby. It's only a baby. How hard can it be? Um, and it is shown that actually, you know, she should have left all of that behind long ago and just had a man and a baby and then she would have been fulfilled. Last but not least is um, the evil queen and this idea of, of her relationship with Elora. Because I thought Elora is, as a baby, key thing, she's a female baby. So... Interestingly, why does why does the film have to have a female child coming between two powerful women, Sorsha and 
her mother, um, who are arguably the two most powerful kind of female figures in the film. But it takes another woman to, it, it's a Laura who actually splits them apart. And I thought that was very poisonous because we talk a lot about women um, you know, doing down other women that we our power is not so much stripped from us by the patriarchy, but it's also that's why the pa- patriarchy is insidious because it teaches us to strip power from each other and it rejects the idea of sisterhood. So, all of that aside, you then have Bob Morda, who while being, you know, an evil genius and the queen of the world and she has no man beside her. She is absolutely, though, the epitome, the archetype of the bad mother. Um, She symbolises, I think, the female rejection of motherhood. And that is a bad thing for a female to reject motherhood, to to reject that kind of the love and compassion that you should show, that you should raise your children in is a terrible thing. Uh, And she treats her daughter like she treats her general. She makes no effort to understand her choices and in the end actually tries to impale her on the spikes of the patriarchy she tries so foolishly to emulate. I rest my argument. <laughs> now, you see, I agree with you about the Bab Morder point that she is the ultimate female aberration. She is a, a woman who doesn't care for babies. I mean, what woman doesn't go, ooh, baby? I mean, I don't go, ooh, baby, but generally it's assumed. Uh, that- <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But it is assumed that a woman and a baby will be like, oh, I want to protect it. And then even if you ignore the whole ooh baby bit, she's not very nice to her own daughter. So I do agree that there is an element of female aberration and just like, oh, God, it's that tired trope again. But I have to challenge you and say you were talking about Elora being a woman and, oh, well, it's a woman coming between two women. It's poisonous. What about sisterhood? But if it was a boy, you'd be saying, oh, but it's like the patriarchy overthrowing the matriarchy. It's like there's that can't be a point because there's no way to win in that. No, no, there isn't. There's no way to win. That's why we have a podcast. It's <laughs> struggling against the inevitable. Everything is stacked against us. It can't be a. It can't be a male. It can't be a female. So I don't necessarily think that I agree with you on that point because I think if you're going to have a choice of a woman coming between women or a men men coming between women, as you know, oh, it's the son, it's the future king. I think it's far more poisonous to have a young boy growing up to overthrow a woman than it is an also very Greek. Yeah. So I is, concede that. I've conceded Bath Morbett and the female aberration. You've conceded um, Laura as being a girl being better than a boy. I feel that Megan has the cast yeah. out here. <laughs> no pressure, Megan. Well, there's a few things that you guys didn't really touch on. I mean, the one, Charlotte, you sort of um, touched on it a little bit about the the final battle. And what I really liked about the final battle was that when they're going up towards it, there's two women and they tell the man, don't worry, you don't have to come with us. Oh my God, I'd forgotten that bit. That's right. Yeah, you can speak in Willow if you want. <laughs> I loved that. Because, okay, you know, he, maybe because he is an, an Elwyn, but, I just love that because he's not only the you know he's the protagonist of the film, the titular character, the you know it's his story we've been following through the whole thing, and these two badass women just stand there and go, "Don't worry, it's okay, we'll take care of this." Like, come on, that's amazing. I loved that, and I love that they both just crack on in there, and 
absolutely get down to it. And I, I really, really love that fight where you've got these two powerful mages mm. basically having at it. And then they basically start pulling each other's hair and like punching each other they in the face. They literally punch each other. They actually <laughs> start punching each other in the face. And I was like, this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. It's just so, you know, it's, it's not as um like squeaky clean and you know it, it actually gets kind of down to the this is basically a pub brawl now um <laughs> and I, I really liked that and you know that Saoirse just goes in there and it goes against her mother so you know it's not just you know this terribly vicious queen she's also her mum that's incredible and the fact that she does it without even you know blinking she just goes in there um, I just, yeah, I really, really loved that piece. And, you know, at the end, it still comes down to Roselle doing the the kind of the final um, fighting, you know, even though Willow does come in, but he just goes to grab the baby and it's still the women who do the fighting for him. Um, so that I did really like. But I also wanted to touch on the general display of female violence because... This really struck me when I was re-watching this. I don't know, I can't remember what I thought of this beforehand, but when I was re-watching it for this, uh, to record this podcast, I was really quite taken aback by seeing women doling out physical, close contact violence in a way that we don't usually see. So the things I'm specifically thinking of are, are two in particular – when the queen slaps the head of her guard across his face, just kind of out of nowhere. And you're like, oh my goodness. Because not only is she the queen, but she's, you know, this powerful mage or whatever, and she chooses to slap him across the face, like a kind of, um, you know, challenge to a duel. It was just very visceral. And you don't normally see women doing that. And then similarly... Saoirse kicks Mad Mardigan in the face, kind of for shits and giggles. Like, she just has, she's having fun, and she kicks him in the face. And later on, Mad Mardigan mentions this. He's like, huh, she kicked me in the face. Why would I love her, you know? But I just found it really, really interesting because we don't usually see women doling out violence in this manner. You know, usually if women are violent, it is, it tends to be, with ranged weaponry, with magic, it's not quite as in your face as it is in this film. And I just found that really interesting on reflection. Well, I have to agree with you that I jotted it down in my notes when I was writing it. The exact quote is, I don't love her. She kicked me in the face. And just like Megan, I was like, that's just brilliant. And this idea that a man wouldn't fall for a woman, not because she might be ugly or she might be the wrong level of society or whatever, but because she kicked him in the face was just, very, as stealing Megan's words here, very visceral, but also very different to what we see. And, and I think that's right. And I think we were discussing monsters a couple of episodes ago. And one of the things I thought about, and I can't remember if we discussed it or not, but was the idea of women on women violence which is very different to 
men on women violence and women on men violence and there's sort of all these issues around it and you know oh can you really show a man kicking a woman because you know then there's issues of of abuse and you know what is it like when a woman hits a man and I just love Willow because it kind of just puts everybody on an even footing and yeah okay she kicks him in the face but then he you know he punches her and she kicks him in the she punches him in the throat to get away and it's just a case of Nobody is making any gender assumptions here. We're all just going to kick and scrap and pull each other's hair just to get the job done and stay alive. Yeah, and one thing that that is 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 very obvious um, in that kind of um, you know you were talking about um, how the women are super powerful sorceresses and actually they kind of throw away their their magic in the end to kind of have a, a barroom brawl and. Um, so this isn't a kind of argument for, I suppose, the film being a more rounded and more feminist is that, you know, very often in fantasy, we get these two distinct types of fighting. We have the men who are, you you know, were saying it's very, it's very visceral fighting. It's very punchy. It's very like hands on. And the women, when they fight, they tend to use much more kind of feminine magic from a distance. Or they're archers, you know, they don't get in close and personal. They're not melee fighters. Um, and this film really shakes that up a bit because, you know, I think it it's it was refreshing to see, you know, the women not, you know, that they're, they're not afraid to jump in and use their fists when, you know, the that's the because no, who knows whether their magic ran out? It probably it, it doesn't say that their magic ran out. It just meant that you know it got to the point where, you know, the the uh, Rezel had a, a massive grudge against being a muskrat for her pretty be all of her life until her youth and beauty uh, faded away so she needed to get back at, uh, at the queen for that so i you know i think that the it's it's one of those difficult things because we talk about violence a lot and how you know the ways in which women are allowed to express it and the ways men are allowed to express it and and the, the concept of badassery and stuff so I, I wonder whether this is indeed the way to go. You know, if you have, if you have to have a violence or, or you know any kind of um, graphic, um, you know, battle scene in your fantasy, um, then it's a great idea not to genderize like the types of the types of way that, that people fight. You know, and say that oh well, this is a, this is how women fight, and this is how men fight. So I really, yeah, I, I concede that point that it's an interesting combination um, and it's an interesting shake-up of what we traditionally see. Can we also just broach on phalluses for a minute? <laughs> oh, Megan, it wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be the podcast if, you know, the dicks didn't get in somewhere, so. Well, I wanted to talk about swords because Mad Mardigan is the kind of character who would have the big sword or, or you know, often with these chosen one narratives when it's, it's a male, they have a special sword or something like that. And I found it really interesting that throughout the, the film, Mad Mardigan never has his own sword. He steals one and then he throws it away and then he steals another one and then he throws that away and then he grabs them all at, at that kind of armory he finds at the, the castle at the end. And it's it's interesting that he never actually has his own sword, given that he is a fighter and he you know talks about how he's a master swordsman and all this kind of stuff, and he doesn't have a sword. Meanwhile, Sorsha has an absolutely fucking terrifying sword with like jagged edges and stuff, and it's like a, an uber sword. It's just it's terrifying and. 
yeah, it. I just found that really, really interesting when you have this kind of fantasy setting and it's, you know, lots of men, you know, Eric and, and all these actual warriors banding about, but really what sword or what weapon do you actually notice in that film? It's Saoirse's sword that you notice. And I think that's pretty interesting from a perspective of symbolic phalluses. I'm just going to leave it there. So I think... I think. I mean, Lucy's the one that's the uh, the one that we're we're a little concerned about here. But I think the consensus is that this is a feminist film. Is that what we're saying? I am happy to concede that it is mostly feminist, and it does a very good job. Probably a much better job than Lady Hawk does when it comes to uh, yes. the feminist film yes. award. <laughs> Could I perhaps add a caveat to that? Perhaps we could describe it as an 80s feminist film. Because I feel that compared to modern day, perhaps not so much, but of its time, it was quite spectacular. Yeah. Do you know what? I I mean, I I go so far as to say, actually, that transcends it a bit. I still think it's pretty feminist. I mean, I I, I presented those arguments because I do think that, you know, they're there are something to think about. and But, you know, it, you can kind of read anything you want into films, especially if they're fantasy and they play with archetypes, you know. And because we, we this is what we do, you know, we, we look at popular media and we unpick it to see what is really there. So, you know, I'm willing to concede that this was a pretty solid attempt at a, at a feminist fantasy film. Yeah, I think I'd have to agree with Lucy because I've seen some of the fantasy films that that come out these days and I still think uh, Willow does it better than many of the things that we have on our screens now. So, Well, um, I'm happy with that. I was just trying to throw you a bone from my my feminist high point of this film is awesome and everybody should watch it. And as soon as I can figure out how to tell my daughter not to watch with all the gory bits, then she will definitely be watching it. Breaking the Glass Slipper is written and produced by Megan Lee, Charlotte Bond and Lucy Hounsom. Please help us spread the word. Subscribe and leave a review on your preferred podcast platform. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you would like to hear on the next episode of Breaking the Glass Slipper.